I hope you've noticed that our worship has a progression to it, that when you come into worship, there's a time of gathering and a time of praise. And then we almost always move into a time of confession, because when you're praising a holy God, you become very aware that you are not holy. And we walk through a time of confession, but then we move into an assurance that we are forgiven, and then we get to praise all over again. And if you pay attention, most churches will follow that liturgy. Because it's a liturgy by which we're reminded again and again and again that we die and rise with Christ. We die and rise with Christ. And this is important for us because it's easy to think about rising with Christ all the time and forget that we have to keep dying to certain things too. And so this is a liturgy that reminds us of who we are and whose we are. And uh, it also sets us up then when we're clean and made right with God, we can open ourselves up and hear his word. We can speak to him in prayer and listen to his word and preached. And so just pointing out something that many of you probably knew, but some of you may have just kind of been absorbing through osmosis. So this beautiful liturgy that we go through in our worship. A few announcements before our offering. Um, the Christian Life Survey, y'all have received a few annoying emails from me about that. Um, the last day to turn that in or finish that is March 15. So if you're looking for one more reason to not study for midterms, just go and dig up that email that I sent you uh, and get it in by March 15. There are nine different Christian colleges that are doing this. Right now we're ranked third out of the responses, so we want to be number one. Why wouldn't we? So um, if you haven't done this yet, please go look in your email. If you have friends who haven't done yet, go look in their emails, tell them to do it, get this done. Um, is that stalking? Um, March 15 is the day that that's due. And then just a heads up, so after this week that we will all study very hard and complete our midterms and be very faithful uh, and sleep well and eat our vegetables, at the end of this week we are going on spring break. Let us be clear about this. Yes, it's a beautiful thing. So the next two weeks we will not have loft because of spring break. And then the weekend after that is Easter weekend, and that's again a time when a lot of us go home, go to host families, and so we will not have loft on Easter, okay? So that's three Sundays in a row that we won't have loft, and then we come back, and then we finish it out to the end, keep answering your questions. So just so that you know where we're going. When you come back from spring break, it will be Holy Week. And during Holy Week in chapel, we will be looking at the uh, four of the sayings of Jesus. So Holy Week is a little bit different rhythm for chapel, four of the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And in the undercroft, also known as the basement of the chapel, there will be a labyrinth. What is a labyrinth? A labyrinth is a path that you can walk reflectively, remembering the path that Jesus walked for you to the cross. We'll have tools down there that will help you think through it. It's not a maze. It's not like, you know... It's not a maze. Um, and you, so when you're, some of you I know have other events sometimes that happen in the chapel basement, but during Holy Week, it's gonna be a labyrinth, it'll be quiet, it'll be meditative in the entire basement. And this is open for anybody to, to go, and you can go a couple times, you can go every day, you can go once during the time, but there'll be a labyrinth in the undercroft, so are you ready for that? Okay. Our offering today will be for the Community Care Fund, as always. Thank you so much for your continued faithfulness on that. And then during our offering, Megan Dickens will have an announcement for us. So I invite the people who are taking the offering to begin to take the offering. And Megan, come on up and...
Here's a microphone for you. I'm giving her this one. Megan, everybody, Megan Dickens. Hi, everyone. Um, Megan Dickens is my name. Um, I'm one of the sustainability interns here at Calvin. We do have those. We care about the environment here at Calvin. Um, and I wanted to tell you about not necessarily an event, but a time coming up. Um, so to kind of a prelude for that is um, before Kilowatt, on my team, I work with the sustainability coordinators when we were planning Kilowatt. Um, someone had a really great idea to have a campus-wide fast. Um, well, that didn't exactly work out in time for Kilowatt, but we still wanted to do it. Um, so we started planning for that, and then we heard by word of mouth that the Max were planning, thinking about planning something like that too. So we thought, why don't we join forces and have um, a fasting event, but we'll both work on it. And then someone else had the idea to, well, it's a spiritual discipline. Shouldn't the Barnabas be involved? So the Barnabas are going to be working with us, with us as well. So um, what this all will look like is these three teams in the CLC um, will be working until April 4th. I'll get there. But we'll be working then until plan this campus-wide fasting I, don't, I struggle with calling it an event because it's not really an event. Um, so this is what it will look like. So on April 4th, it's the week coming back from Easter. Um, it's a Thursday, April 4th. Um, for the whole day, basically we're just encouraging um, everyone in the dorms, everyone on campus to fast from something, whether that be food, whether that be um, Facebook, video games, whatever that is. Um, it's after Lent, but it's a time to just think about um, fasting in that spiritual discipline that we often neglect. Um, and between five and six on that day in the CFAC, there'll be facilitated discussions going on. Um, some will be on environmentally sustainable kind of topics, and others will be on multicultural topics relating to fasting. Um, and then the day before, where the Barnabas come in, is the day before all of your, if you're a freshman or sophomore, all of your dorm worships will be on the discipline of fasting. Um, so I just encourage you all, um, before going off to spring break, to think about that, to think about if you will participate, and if you will, what, what that will look like for you, whether that's one meal, two meals, three meals, or um, giving up video games for that day, or whatever it looks like. So I just wanted to let you know about a month ahead of time that that will be coming your way. Thank you. together. Oh, what an amazing thing it is, God, that because of Jesus Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Thank you that you tell us in Scripture that as far as the East is from the West, so far you remove our sins from us. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us. We stand amazed by this. We are so grateful for your care. We thank you for those of us who got good news that we were selected to be RAs. Or maybe we got into the nursing program. Or maybe we got into the graduate school that we wanted. And there's such relief and joy and anticipation in those announcements. 
and we celebrate with those who are celebrating. We also know, though, there are those who applied for these things and have not gotten good news and are wondering what this means for how they should spend their lives and how to use their time well. And we pray that we will stand with those who are grieving and we will remind them of their gifts and their passions and remind them of your faithfulness and goodness. We pray for those who are hurting. We know that there are those who have lost loved ones. And the season moving toward Easter reminds us of how desperately we wish that they were here. And yet we also want to claim the hope of the resurrection. So Lord, we pray for those in our community who grieve. We pray for those who are sick or hurting, people who have broken bones, people who are recovering from surgery. We continue to pray for our brother Paul, that his lungs will be restored fully, that he will be able to cough and to breathe without problem. And Lord, we pray that these things will happen swiftly so that he can join us again in worship after Easter. Lord, we ask that you bless our community as we're having discussions about priorities and planning, are doing strengths and weaknesses, opportunities, threats. We pray for creativity, for energy in these discussions. We pray that we will be a community that extends mercy to each other when there's something that we disagree with, when there's something that we're not clear on. May we go to the person and have a good conversation. May we seek to build community even when we disagree. And Lord, we pray tonight that as we look at a topic that has been controversial and problematic and confusing, that you, Holy Spirit, will come and speak to us. That as we open your word and look deep, that we will be reminded most of all the love of God for us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, for your attendance tonight in mighty and bold ways. And as we look toward the week ahead, we pray faithfulness for those of us who need to study, take exams, finish papers and projects, for those of us who just need to get up when our alarm goes off and actually go to class and do that all the way to Friday. And then, Lord, we ask your mercy as many of us travel, keep us safe. For the service learning trips that are going out, we pray that you bless them with great conversations, with opportunities to serve, with experiences that will shape them in understanding who you are and what you desire your kingdom to be. And for those of us who are looking forward to relaxing and resting and sleeping and eating good food, we pray that you use these things to restore us and to draw us close to you. May this break be a time when we renew our relationships with dear friends and with you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray that we see it in many, many ways between now and when we are again together. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> so, Hell. That's what we're talking about tonight. Hell. And the topic of hell has been a bit controversial in the past couple of years in particular 
Because as some of you know, there was a book that was written by someone who used to pastor here in town and has since moved. And he wrote a book called Love Wins, and it created this whole conversation. And people thought, is he talking about universalism, the idea that everybody gets to go to heaven, or is he saying that there really isn't a hell, or what is he really talking about, and what do we believe, and what does this all mean? And what became really apparent through all of the conversations that happened then and are still kind of going on is that we don't know what we're talking about when it comes to hell. I think that's one of the clearest things. Most of us hadn't given it a whole lot of thought, and all of a sudden there's this book and everyone's talking about it, and we're like, I don't know, what do you think about hell? I don't know, what do you think about hell? And we can understand the temptation toward universalism. I'm not saying that that's what the book teaches, I'm just saying it's a temptation when we think about hell to be tempted toward universalism, the belief that everybody who ever lived gets to go to heaven, from Hitler to Mother Teresa, everybody gets to go to heaven. And that is such a good and legitimate temptation. Because many of you were with us at the beginning of the semester when we gathered for worship in the Fine Arts Center and we prayed for people we know who are far from God or have rejected God or don't believe the gospel, don't love Jesus. And we wrote their names on post-it notes and we put them on a whiteboard and the whiteboard was full of names. And we took names off the whiteboard and many of us keep praying for those. I've got them on my refrigerator, the, the names that I have. And I'll be praying for them until Easter. And I know that some of you keep praying for those names. And the truth is, we would love it if there wasn't a hell. We would love it if everybody got to go to heaven because that meant that all of the people that we love who are on that whiteboard, we wouldn't have to worry about anymore. Right? And speaking as somebody who put names on that whiteboard, names of people who are near to me, I would love it if I didn't have to worry about them anymore. I would love it. So that's one temptation is to think, oh man, wouldn't it just be great if everybody got to go because then I wouldn't have to worry about anything anymore. Another temptation that comes out of our discussions about hell is to appoint certain people or groups or persons that they're going to be there. You hear this in different discussions. Well, that group of people, they're, they're all going to hell. Those, those people, they're going to hell. Oh, people like that are so going to hell. And you notice that when people say that, that group of people is going to hell, they're not in that group of people. So that's another temptation. There is a hell. People are going to go there, not me. So it's either nobody goes or people go that I am aware of and they're going to go. Those are the temptations around the hell conversation. And this conversation has by and large been shaped by things that really aren't from the Bible. Like some of our most imaginative writing about hell is by poets. You English majors, Dante, what did he write? The Inferno, right? What a great piece. Talks all about hell. Very descriptive. Very specific. John Milton, what did he write? Paradise Lost. Again, very descriptive about hell. 
And so we have these two poets who have shaped the imagination, particularly of Western civilization and the Western Christian church, around what hell is and what hell looks like more than just about anything else. And so when we're coming into this conversation with these temptations and with this background, we have to kind of clear it all out. And so tonight we're going to take a look at what Jesus actually said about hell, which I think when you run stuck about something, that's probably a good place to look. What did Jesus actually say about this? So I invite you to turn, we're going to start with Matthew, Matthew 5. If you were around last fall, we did this together. We studied the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want a whole sermon on these passages on that, you can go back to the archives and look it up. <coughs> I'm better than last week, but I am not all there. So Matthew 5. If you look at verse uh, 21, you see that's the section that says concerning anger, right? You've heard that it was said, do not murder whoever murders, lie to judgment, but I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you be liable to judgment, you insult a brother or sister, you're liable to counsel. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. It's like, okay. And then if you skip down to the adultery section, 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And what is Jesus talking about there? Well, when Jesus talks about hell in Matthew 5, the Greek word that he uses is Gehenna. And Gehenna referred to a location, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a valley kind of outside of Jerusalem with an ugly and evil history. It was in the Valley of Hinnom where pagans set up altars and sacrificed babies and children. And with the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were enthralled by these things, they sacrificed there too. The Valley of Hinnom became known as a place of slaughter, a place of evil, a place of rebellion against God. And in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom was still seen as foul because it was used basically as a place to chuck everything you didn't know where else to chuck. So the bodies of criminals who had been executed but didn't deserve to be buried were thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. Carcasses of animals that had died but couldn't be buried because they were in the city of Jerusalem were chucked into the Valley of Hinnom. So it was a place where there was decay and rot and foul stench. And because of this, there was a fire that was always going on to try and consume whatever had been thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. So imagine you're a disciple listening to Jesus, and first you get the Beatitudes, and then you get the, hey, you're salt, hey, you're light, and you're like, oh, guys, it's great. And then he's like, hey, if you're um, kind of angry and you call somebody a bad name, you're going to go throw in Vahana. I've been like, what? 
That seems kind of severe. If you look at a woman dustfully in your heart, it's better to cut off your hand than to all of you to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. What? It's like Jesus is thinking, here's the most disgusting place you know of, the place you do not want to go. Sin will get you there. Some of you know what it's like to smell decay to smell rot, to smell death. A few years ago when I was hiking the Grand Canyon, I went down and it was early in the morning and when I went up, it was hotter and it was in the afternoon and I was making my way up and I came around a bend and there was a horrible smell. Just, just horrible, like gag smell. I couldn't figure out what it was. And I had people coming down the trail be like, what are you? I don't know what that is. What's that smell? Park ranger comes down the trail. And I said to her, what on earth is that smell? And she said, well, actually, one of the pack mules had fallen into the canyon. And because of where it fell, there was no way to get it out. So it was just there, rotting. And she pointed up. She said, look. And you look up and you could see the vultures circling over top of where this mule was. And she said to me, don't worry though, because once you get around the next bend, you, you don't have to smell it anymore. You're like in the worst area right now. It was horrible. The valley of Hinnom was like full of that. Plus smoke, plus human waste, plus every disgusting thing you can think about with rodents in there and worms in there. It was just foul. It was disgusting. Are you getting the picture? Are you getting the image? When he says the whole of you will be thrown into Gehenna, Gehenna is not good. You don't want to go there. You want to avoid this place at all costs. In fact, most people would avoid it at all costs. You would walk around way to the other side. You would stay upwind at all costs. You avoided it. Don't go there. That's the first image we are given of hell, of Gehenna, of a place of judgment. Your sin, if you persist in it, will get you there. You don't want to go there. So we think, okay, got it, Jesus, Gehenna, don't want to go, good. But what does this mean about like hell, like going to hell and being there forever? Like that's a really bad image, we get it, we don't want to go there, but does he say more? Yes, he does. Turn to page 795. This is page uh, Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at verse 36. Jesus has previously told this parable of the weeds where someone goes out and they, they um, sow their good seed and the seed grows up, but while they're sleeping, someone comes in and throws bad seed and it all grows up together. And the farmer says, we'll just wait until the harvest time and then we'll go through and get everything together. And he says, you know, there you go. So verse 36, he left the crowds, he went into the house and his disciples approached him saying, um, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the ones who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. Kind of a stark image again, isn't it? Anything that causes sin and all evildoers thrown into fire. And if you keep reading the parables, this judgment thing comes through again and again and again. If you want to, you can turn to Matthew 25, page 807. We have three parables there. You can see the parable of the bridesmaids, the parable of the talents, and the judgment of the nations. The end of each parable is bleak. The bridegroom comes at the end, though they're not there. The later, verse 11, chapter 25, later other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. There are people who are going to be shut in, people who are going to be shut out. And then look at uh, verse 28. You remember the parable of the talents. Everybody gets a little bit, what they do with them, how they respond. And there's one who doesn't do anything with it. So he says, verse 28, take the talent from him, give it to the one with 10. For to those who have, more will be given. They will have an abundance. From those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then look at the very end of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Look at verse 44. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. pretty hard, isn't it? Reading all those passages, one after the other. Jesus again and again and again in his teaching is clear about certain things. And it doesn't just happen in the Gospels. In the book of Revelation, John has an image. If you look at Revelation 21, page 1008 in your Bible, Revelation 21, begin to read at verse 5, so page 1008, Revelation 21, verse 5. And the one who was seated on the throne, that is Jesus, said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, 
the sorcerers, the adulterers, and all liars. Their place will be in the lake that burns with sulfur, fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's pretty stark. It's pretty stark. And what we see again and again and again in the teachings of Jesus is that sin has consequences. What those consequences are, is it a lake of burning fire that you're in forever? We don't know. But what is very clear is that sin has consequences. And this is consistent with what we read in all of Scripture. From the very beginning of the story between God and God's people, this is made clear. God lays out for Adam and Eve, here's the deal. You do this, good stuff. You do this, bad stuff. They do this, bad stuff. They're kicked out of the garden. Sin has consequences. God doesn't come back to them and say, oh, that thing with the tree, that wasn't very clear. Really, that's not that big of a deal. That's on me, totally. You guys can stay. No. Sin has consequences. From the beginning of the story between God and God's people, sin has consequences. And we can see this throughout the Old Testament as he's bringing this people and he's trying to shape them into people who know him and love him. And they keep rebelling. He sets them free from the nation of Egypt and they go out on their pilgrimage to the promised land and they rebel and they get punished and they rebel and they get punished. And it doesn't just happen on a corporate scale. Moses, who has been incredibly obedient and he's put up with quite a bit, he gets to a point where God says, hey, go speak to this rock and it'll provide what you need. I'll provide what you need through the rock. And Moses has just had it. He's had it with a whole lot of them all. He goes over the rock and he just bangs on it. Because of that, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, which I've always thought was incredibly unfair. You see this in the life of David. David is described early on as a man after God's own heart. He gets chosen to be the king. And of course, as many of you know, there's this horrible episode with Bathsheba. He has an affair with her and then he arranges for her husband to be killed. Turns out she's pregnant. And the consequence of their sin is that that child dies. Again and again and again, sin has consequences. You could see this in the people when they rebel against God and he sends the prophets to say, stop doing it, and they keep doing it, and they go into exile. Sin has consequences. And it's one of the things you'll hear in a discussion about hell is, well, would a loving God ever do that? Would a loving God allow people to actually go to hell? Would a loving God allow this? Well, there are lots of things that God allows. Would a loving God allow Adam and Eve to just get out of the garden? Would he allow Moses to not go into the promised land? Would a loving God allow this tiny little infant son of David and Bathsheba to die? What's the answer? Yes. Because sin has consequences. And our temptation in these discussions is to say, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's overflowing with loving kindness. He's forgiving. All of that is true. And he is a God of justice. He is a God who is holy. 
And there's actually a verse in scripture that talks about that the smell of sin is like a stench in his nostrils, that he can't stand it, that it makes him gag, that he is repulsed by it. Our God is a God of mercy, yes, and he is a God of justice. And sin has consequences. And this is why Jesus is so clear to say, look. If you do certain things, you're going to end up over here. And I don't want you over there. I want you over here. That's the invitation. The invitation that is given repeatedly in Scripture is come back, come back, come back. How often do the prophets say in Scripture, turn your hearts back to God, come back, repent, shred your garments, mourn your sin, and return to the Lord your God, for He will pardon. Right? It comes up all the time in Scripture. In one of the most well-known parables that Jesus teaches there are these characters. There's this young son and an older son and a dad. And the young son says to the dad, you're not dead yet, kind of wish you were. So could I have the inheritance? Well, I'm still alive. He gets the inheritance, he goes off, and he indulges in a whole bunch of sin. Gluttony and lust and greed and pride, all of them. He lives a life that's just thrown into sin. And where does a life of sin end him up? In pig poop. I'm going to guess Jesus was a little more graphic. That's where sin will get you, is what he's saying to people. It will end you up in the pig poop. But what happens to this guy when he's in the pig poop? There's this great line in Luke 15, 17, where the, the young son, the runaway son, the wandering son, the son who has sinned and sinned and sinned some more, has this moment where he comes to himself, the Greek says. He comes to his senses. There's an awakening. The scales fall off his eyes, and he says, I am in pig poop. I am an idiot. Which is often what the scales falling off your eyes reveals. I am an idiot. I am in pig poop. It's true. So he realizes that he's in pig poop. He realizes, like, my dad gives me everything and I'm sitting here in pig poop. I'm an idiot. And he turns toward home and you know how the story goes. The father sees him a long way off. He hugs him. He brings him home. They have a whole party. And the story should end there. End with the party. End on a good note. But it doesn't. Because there's this other character, this older brother. And he's kind of ticked at this whole thing. And just as the father went out to the younger brother, so the father goes out to the older brother to invite him into the party. And he says, look, do you think that we're not going to throw a party? I thought he was dead and he's alive again. I thought he was lost and he's found. And that's where the story ends. With the older brother on the porch, his own version of pig poop, refusing to come into the party. Because sometimes it's very easy to look at other people and say, oh man, that guy's going to hell. He wasted all his money on whores, and he got drunk a lot. He's going to hell. 
But dad, I've done everything right. So, you know, not me. I was talking with one of our community this week. A student came to me and, and she said, you know how in youth group they would do this illustration where you had to write down your sin on a hunk of paper and then you'd like throw it in a garbage can and they'd burn up all the sins and remind you that all your sins are consumed just like that. I was like, yeah, I've, I've heard of that. She says, I could never come up with anything to write down. And she said, I would sit there and I would think really hard. But she said, I was a good kid. I followed the rules. I didn't cheat in school and I didn't have a boyfriend, so that wasn't an issue. And I didn't drink. Like, I was a good kid. And so I would just sit there and people, other people writing stuff down, like fighting with their parents or, you know, cheated on this test or got drunk or whatever. And I just didn't know what to write down. And she said, so I was telling this to my mentor a couple weeks ago. And my mentor said to me, huh, have you ever been afraid? And our student said, yeah. And in fact, this is a pretty significant problem in her life. And her mentor said to her, the most frequent command in scripture is do not be afraid. So she said, she said, what would it look like in your life if you realized that your deep fear is actually sin against this command of God that we never have to be afraid? And in that moment, our friend realized that she was sitting in pig poop. The scales fell from her eyes and she said, suddenly I thought, oh my goodness, I sin all the time. Like this fear that I have that's about not trusting God at all with my future and the control patterns that I've developed are all about the fact that I don't really trust God and I'm arrogant and I'm so proud and I get angry at people when they don't. And he just went on and she said, I became overwhelmed by my sin. I was just like stunned by it. And so she said, so I'm here in your office to say to you, I don't know what to do now. And I said, well, here's the beautiful thing is that we get to confess. You get to lay out your sin. You get to say to God, and I, another thing I did wrong, and I'm just so blue on this one. I said, now the temptation, though, is once you have realized your sin and the fact that you are angry or lacking of trust or worrying or fearful is actually rooted in your deep pride and selfishness, the temptation then is to move into despair. Be like, I am awful. I am an idiot. I am in pig poop. And to stay in the pig poop. And to be like, look at all this pig poop. Look at all I've done. This is astonishing. I'm sure there are lots of people out there who don't have nearly as much pig poop around them as I do. This is just appalling to me. Which then becomes another sin because then you're like, my pig poop is much worse than your all's pig poop. which again is like selfishness and pride and ego and blech all rolled up together. So you can't get stuck there. You got to move because the purpose of confession is to put us before God and to hear a word back from God as we heard tonight. The old is gone. The new has come. You are forgiven. Confession allows us to hear the assurance of pardon, which allows us then to praise God who doesn't let us sit there in our pig poop. 
Because the move is to turn from sin and turn toward Jesus. That's the move. The more we become aware of our sin, our lack of trust, our lusting, our greed, our arrogance, our sloth, the more it should move us to stand up and come to our senses and run toward our Father. That's what it needs to do. And that's why Jesus is so clear. Like, look, if you stay in your sin, you're going to end up in Gehenna. You're going to end up in pig poop. You're going to end up in a place you don't want to be. And you're going to end up there forever because you're going to get stuck. And that's hell. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross... He took all of our sin, our arrogance and our pride and the cheating that we've done and the lies that we've told, all the things that we've done, and he took them to the cross because sin has consequences. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that the consequence that you deserve and the consequence that I deserve, things that rightly should be ours, things that should send us away from God, that should not allow us into the promised land, that should take things that are precious away from us, the consequences of sin that you and I deserve, that should send us straight to the pit of hell, are gone. The old is gone. The new has come. What God has done is completely done. That's the truth. And so when we think about our friends and the people we know who do not yet love Jesus, there is indeed a genuine concern. And if you're like me, sometimes you run out of words for how to pray for them. And you get tired of looking for some little sense that there's a thawing, that there's a softening, that their hearts are turning in some way toward Jesus. Maybe what we pray is what is often said on Ash Wednesday, when the ashes are put on foreheads, turn from sin and turn toward Jesus. And maybe the invitation for us is to continue to pray that the people that we love, all the names on that whiteboard, will turn from sin and turn toward Jesus. And we will just keep praying that and praying that and praying that and praying that but we won't stop just praying it for them. We will pray it for ourselves because sin has consequences and I don't want any of you to bear the consequences that sin deserves. So my prayer for you and my pleading with you, if you have not created a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you have not claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not turned from sin and turned toward Jesus, then do it. Do it tonight. Talk to a friend. Talk to me. Talk to one of the prayer servants. But stop doing what you're doing because it will send you straight to Gehenna. 
It will send you to a place where you don't want to be. And for anyone who is sitting here thinking, I am stuck in pig poop and there is no way out, I say that is false. We sing it so clearly. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. This is what our God does. This is what he does for his people again and again and again in Scripture. Yes, sin has its consequences, but again and again and again in Scripture, we have a God who moves, who goes out, who goes running toward people who turn toward him. Our God today is waiting for you to turn toward him, to give up that sin, that large or small, that thin thing that weighs around your ankles, that tangles you up and keeps you from moving forward, and he is ready to welcome you home. Turn from sin. Turn toward Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, writes Paul. But the gift of God is eternal life. Is there a hell? Yeah. Is it a threat? Yes. What does it mean for us? It means we love Jesus more because of what he did we don't go there turn from sin turn toward Jesus amen you pray with me God, what an amazing thing it is that you do not just leave us behind as our sins deserve, but you come after us. You are unrelenting. And after we have claimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you don't stop working. You send your Holy Spirit into us to sanctify us and make us pure and blameless. So God, we pray that we will be people who are pure and blameless, holy because of the righteousness that is ours in Christ. Every day we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to turn from sin and turn toward Jesus, to love you more. We thank you, God, that there is a wideness in your mercy that we cannot understand. We thank you that we can claim that mercy because of Jesus Christ and you wash us clean of the foul stench of sin. And you let us raise up from the waters of baptism fresh and clean and alive. We thank you because you so loved the world, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What a gift, what a God. Amen.